0: Good morning, everyone. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University. I'm a host on the New Books Network and African Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in. Today, it's my honor to welcome Dwayne Jethro of the University of Cape Town. He's written a terrific book titled Heritage Formation in the Senses in Post-Apartheid South Africa, Aesthetics of Power, in his book, Duane develops a novel analytical framework to understand the relationship between the senses and heritage formation. And he means by the senses, the traditional Western ones, taste, smell, sight, hearing, and touch. He takes us through South Africa's process of heritage formation to show us how the senses are intimately linked as foundational to not only nation building, but how to understand nation building through a material culture. What I loved about Dwayne's study is its interdisciplinary nature and the way in which it makes important contributions to new fields such as sensory studies and memory studies and the material turn in the humanities and social sciences, but also more quote-unquote traditional fields such as anthropology and my own discipline, peace and conflict studies. Dwayne, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. Uh, it's an honor to be featured on the podcast today.
0: Thank you. So just to get us started, can you introduce yourself to our listeners with an emphasis on how you came to write such a wonderful book?
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Dwayne Jethro. I'm currently based at the Center for Creating the Archive at the University of Cape Town. I'm a junior research fellow here. Prior to this position, I was a researcher at the Centre for Anthropological Research on Museums and Heritage at the Humboldt University Berlin. I worked with Professor Sharon Macdonald and a wonderful team of researchers there. Uh, Prior to that, I had a postdoc at the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative at the University of Cape Town. So I've been travelling quite a bit, Mm -hmm. and. Yeah, and prior to that postdoc, uh, I was on my PhD. I was, I was busy doing my PhD. Um, I graduated with my, my, my PhD in 2015, I defended my dissertation at the University of Utrecht. My supervisors were Professor Birgit Meyer and Professor David Chillister. So, um, The book actually is my, it's it's an evolution of the PhD project itself, um, which looked at simply put heritage formation and nation building in post-apartheid South Africa. So um, my PhD dissertation uh, attempted to look at um, how new heritage was being made in the post-apartheid dispensation and how that. Invention of new heritage, or the identification of new heritage, was being uh, coupled to and enlisted as part of the project of, of reconciliation and nation building, bringing South Africans t- together after after apartheid and and in the shadow of colonialism. So um, some of the, some of the work the the, the main in in some senses, the main structure of the book actually uh, emerges out of that out of that dissertation. But it's it's two very different projects. They they may look similar, but they 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 two very different projects.
0: I I read them as quite different actually. So I haven't read your um, dissertation obviously, but it didn't read to me like a dissertation project. It felt. Um, rooted in the literature it's you know how PhDs have a particular framework that you need to meet to like quote-unquote pass I think the book didn't the book didn't have that structure for me what I loved about it was it's storytelling you're such a natural storyteller and that came through I think in your anthropological um, sensibility but before we get into those stories just because we are um, going to share your podcast with individuals beyond South Africa and beyond the African continent more broadly, I know my American colleagues struggle to understand what is heritage. It's not a concept that we have really in the literature here. And we also sometimes don't always know unless you're in museum studies or art history, any sort of conceptual understanding of material culture. Could you explain those two fields of study before we get into the, uh, the meat,
1: quote unquote, Uh, Yeah, it's such a basic, and but such an important and substantive question. What is heritage? So I think my book is making a set of propositions about what heritage actually is. Um, In heritage studies literature, you find a stream of approaches that address heritage as that which comes from the past, Mm -hmm. um, typically buildings. Um, So an inherited material culture—stuff that you can see, feel, and touch. So, like, uh, and often stuff that 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 has a very clear visual patina of being old. So it's uh, it's inherited material, the picky buildings, uh, mm-hmm. but can extend to a range of um, commonsensical forms of material culture. Like objects that you find in museums, also so so it's materially based, um, identified and recognized as being old, and most especially worth preserving for the future. These are the basic terms of 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 uh, ordinary, commonsensical, very open-ended um, and widely understood definition of what uh, what heritage is. But we can extend that to um, to encompass things that are what in the literature are sometimes referred to to as intangible cultural heritage. These are practices, uh, oral traditions, uh, dance, and ritual that aren't textualized in the same way as uh, Western um, forms of knowledge And these can also be considered a form of heritage because they are part of a love tradition of a people and they are essential to the perpetuation of that culture into the future. So they can also be uh, considered to be forms of heritage. My personal position is that that heritage is, um, is that which is identified as being worth uh, commemoration that identification takes place in the present, and that identification always has some kind of material reference. So even if it is an, an oral performance, that oral performance requires our, our bodies to actually perform that oral performance and to receive that reference. So that there's always, for me personally, uh, there's always some kind of material dimension uh, that makes... Um, uh, what is claimed to be heritage legible in some way, so that people can perceive it and understand it as being legible. And I think um, that's one of the, the propositions that percolates in the in the book: uh, the legibility, the material legibility that, that is of of heritage claims that is made sensible, that, that is understood through practices of claim making and positioning.
0: Now I love your answer because it leads us to I think your subtitle Aesthetics of Power and you do provide a really rich theorization I think of the aesthetics of power and its subconcepts in your in your telling of the of aesthetics of authentication and the aesthetics, um, the aesthetics of persuasion. And I was particularly struck by your analysis of how these two go together to help understand not only heritage formation and the ways in which material culture play into nation building processes around heritage, heritage as an important factor in that sense, but also laying the groundwork for the senses as a way to understand how the government or the the nation appeals to the senses to justify its heritage formations. That's why I found the the theory there was so compelling. And I think readers will be um, richly rewarded for a careful read of your your introduction. Um, And that leads me to my next question. You take the sense-based framework, Um, how are Senses central to the nation building. Like this is, you know, you said commonsensical. Of course we all have senses in some way. It may be, you know, you could see in the American context it might be considered ableist, Um, but that would be an unfair critique, I think. How are the senses central to the nation building project in the South African context? Um,
1: Thanks for um, for the question, um, Susan. Um, just to step back a little bit um, to orientate our readers um, and to orientate our listeners, um, in, in my book, I, I, I take this open-ended approach to to heritage as as, as being founded on, um, yeah, as being founded on, on notions of authenticity and notions of of, of aesthetics as well. And uh, authenticity is always in play when heritage claims are being made. Because heritage is is oftentimes a, a, a truth claiming uh, discourse. Heritage is se- essentially a truth claiming discourse. It's a founding discourse it's, because it is so uh, appropriate. It, when you when you claim something as your heritage, you claim it as your own, right? And you are staking a legitimate claim to that, and that, and you are also staking a, a a claim to the to the legitimacy of that form that you are actually claim, making a claim to. I situate that claim-making process in literature that shows that authenticity itself, authenticity itself is uh, is itself an unstable category.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that's, and, and it's precisely because authenticity is an unstable category, which makes heritage such an interesting discourse to follow uh, when it comes to um, all kinds of uh, social contestation. Um the aesthetic I, I mobilize um, to mm. foreground um, to foreground the uh, lived experience and the encounters with material cultural forms that are claimed as heritage to speak to the affordances that these these forms have that sometimes go far beyond the claims that um, different stakeholders actually know sometimes these affordances are surprising and unexpected and they they lead to all kinds of excesses that that make these forms even more compelling as as heritage forms. So to return to the question of uh, the census and its centrality to the nation-building project, um, my book tracks five different case studies of of five uh, distinct heritage projects. The trajectory of the book is um, from uh, the state-driven Freedom Park Heritage Project to um, the entrepreneurial, uh, the entrepreneurial market-driven project uh, driven by and developed by uh, Jan Scano, um, who branded himself um, Jan Braai. Um So uh, within this trajectory, I, I have five different case studies, mm-hmm. five, distinct, uh, five distinct projects, with uh, mapped according to the five different senses. A colleague of mine said that this should be the model for all books going forward, five chapters, five sentences, five chapters. So in any case, um, the argument I make is that the census, the census are central to legitimating the claims that are being made in these distinctive, uh, each one of these distinctive heritage programs. Sometimes the senses are invoked explicitly, um, but oftentimes they are implicit to the heritage claim-making process.
0: Right. so for
1: example, um so for example we find that in um in chapter 4 chapter 4 which addresses the the vuvuzela for example the construction of the vuvuzela especially during the 2010 world cup um the sound of the vuvuzela which is uh, uh, indistinct it, it's a brain sound um it the, it doesn't can contain any Distinct aesthetic value to it, but it was precisely because the sound was so polarizing, as as you either you either liked it or you didn't like it, right? Um, and in that in the context of the of the World Cup, um, that set of debates simply fueled and added to the narratives that were were being crafted by the state and football officials. That this was an authentic, um, that that this was an authentic African heritage form, um, because I mean, all heritage forms work like that, right? Like you, you either agree that it is a heritage form or it's not, and right. the sound helps substantiate that that kind of claim making. Um, it also goes to show um, how limited the frame of um, debate and disputation is, because the the sound didn't allow for for, for nuance, for for any other kind of uh, alternate argument about um, different possibilities of the authenticity of this. this. So, in effect, um, using that example and and other example other examples that, that come up throughout the book, um, we see that the senses either implicitly or, or implicitly or sometimes explicitly uh, bind and galvanize the um, and and in the South African context, um, it was expli- that that explicit claim was often made that um, heritage was about the nation rather than um, being framed and, and pitched at smaller scales of uh, collectivities. Although in 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 chapter although in chapter two we had, we had discussed a series of memorials that were vandalized, those memorials were developed. Or a kind of local collectivity, but they definitely were tied into a kind of national narrative of the overcoming of um, the struggles of apartheid and yeah. and commemorating heroes who had been overlooked by the state. So there was such an overemphasis uh, on on this national narrative that um, the heritage discourses needed to be pitched uh, within that within that frame of reference in order for them to be intelligible and in order for them to have traction as well. And the sensors were crucial to making those kinds of um, footnotes amongst uh, the different audiences to reach to.
0: So that... Um... I love that answer, and it leads me to perhaps. Uh, it's a good time to hear some of your stories. One thing that is so great about the anthropology of your book is your ability to take the reader along. So when I was reading, and I had this feeling like, oh, I'm on Dwayne's shoulder, and I'm going along, and I'm visiting Freedom Park, or I'm sitting on um, the bench outside the courthouse in Cape Town, and I can smell the smells of District Six. Is there? Um, an excerpt you would like to read from the book for us to give a reader a sense of the the depth of your stories? Um, I was thinking perhaps um, something from chapter three or maybe from Jan Bry. Jan Jan Bry, I think, was my favorite chapter also because Desmond Tutu appreciates T-bone stakes because they are in the shape of Africa. (laughs) 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 The best lines in an academic book ever. Yeah, uh,
1: Desmond Tutu... He genuinely did say that
0: yes i don't know if you have something you'd like to share with listeners just to give some
1: yeah i, I think one of my favorite passages that i enjoyed writing and and like sometimes there's, there's a passage of writing that you just you just keep going back to you keep returning to it it's just it's so evocative for you and i think the, the little introduction for for chapter three fragrances and forced removal In that chapter, I track um, smell and references to aroma in biographies of uh, communities that were forcibly removed in Cape Town, specifically District 6, but other communities as well. Um, And I track and locate them um, uh, in place and and how how the sense of smell conceptually works to structure a sense of of productive nostalgia in some way. And I make this case for about using these examples. I make this case for the conceptual possibilities of, of the sense of love. And the introduction for that book was um uh, it, yeah, it was it was kind of crucial for me. Like um these little vignettes, each chapter starts off with a with a, some kind of small uh, vignette. And these these vignettes were really important for anchoring um uh, the kinds of stories I wanted to um. Convey and and also the the themes that were percolating in that chapter. So I'll just read the the little vignette that starts off the um, the chapter on fragrances and forced removal.
0: Page page seventy one
1: eh? Yeah, I'll read page seventy one um, to the top of page seventy three. So like one one and a half pages.
0: Perfect. Thank you.
1: One of the first things I did after relocating to Berlin in 2017 was put up a black and white poster of a mid-century scene from my hometown, Cape Town. It features a natalie dressed gentleman in the company of two women engulfed by flowers. They are flower sellers sitting in Adderley Street in the heart of Cape Town. The image is a strong reminder of the inner-city flower market, situated in a shaded alley brimming with colourful flowers and cooling scents. That cut through the hot, smoggy, inner city air. Yet it wasn't the contents of the image that held my attention so intensely. The print had a backstory that made the sweet-smelling nostalgia it triggered much more poignant. The print was one of a series of flower sellers and the history of flower selling in the city produced by historian Melanie Bowie, who designed them using photographs recovered from archives in Cape Town. Working with contemporary flower sellers, Bowie curated the prints and and a series of postcards into an exhibition experiment called Cape Town Floriography. Launched on Heritage Day 2016, the prints were distributed amongst uh, flower sellers to use as wrapping, which effectively and purposefully changed the cycle of using waste newsprint for the same purpose. Setting the images of the history of flower selling into circulation on Heritage Day, the Cape Town Floriography Project asserted the social significance, indeed the heritage significance, of the flower sellers in the city by drawing on the fleeting materiality of the print culture essential to their trade. I would sometimes turn to my print for inspiration when trying to think about smell, nostalgia, and forced removal. In doing so, I often grappled with what appeared to be one of the image's central contradictions that it depicted a scene of traders who circulated the scent and color of flowers in the city center. But as black and colored traders, they experienced racial discrimination that forced them to live at its periphery. How can we reconcile the senses and the sense of smell in particular with the urban experience of displacement? Um, so from there on, I, I start uh, delving into the theory, yep. um, and um, which which I would uh, invite your readers to and your listeners to check out for themselves, but um, yeah, that, that little uh, vignette was 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 really crucial for me. And and at the end of that chapter, um, I'll I'll just read because I, I I tie the chapter up with that um, with that opening vignette. So I'll just jump to the end of the chapter and read okay. you that uh, that first little paragraph there. So. My print, from Cape Town, uh, my print from the Cape Town floriography project hung on my wall for about a year, prompting fragrant memories of home. Over time, however, it took on a brownish-yellow patina, as if the paper had aged out of sympathy for the character, characters' mm-hmm. pictured in the old scene. This chapter has in some ways been an attempt to come to terms with an apparent tension in this image. Between the central place of flower sellers and ordinary black working-class pe- people like them, Having historically been pushed from the centre to the margins of the city, in many ways, I've tried to make sense of this tension through consideration of the role of memories of smell and aroma, uh, through a consideration of the role memories of smell and aroma played in black working class communities making sense of apartheid-era forced displacement. So you can see, like these these little these these little vignettes were were really important for um, my my thinking through and and for working through. Um, what what I considered to be the central issues um, percolating in each one of the in each one of the chapters, and that was that was one that really stuck with me. Um, it, it really did, that that poster really did evoke a, a very strong sense of nostalgia in me, um, and it was the kind of nostalgia that I that that I think uh, opened me up to to the kind of identifications that were, that were being are made by the intellect is a in that a cite in that chapter. Is that
0: sense of nostalgia central to a sense framework?
1: I think the sense of nostalgia is very strongly related to uh, the sense of smell and, and aroma. Um, uh, cultural studies literature, sensory study literature, uh, backs it up quite, quite strongly, more than any other sensory modality. The sense of smell um, is, is a potent, potent um, trigger for, for nostalgia. And, um, so in that chapter, I I was working through what, what nostalgia actually is and what the potential of, of nostalgia, uh, the potentialities of, of nostalgia, because nostalgia, the, the etymology of the word nostalgia is, is a longing for, um, a longing for home essentially. So it's a longing to be back home. It's not just the longing for a better time or a better place, but it is connected to the idea of home. And so um, that chapter was working through a kind of nostalgia, but it doesn't, nostalgia doesn't necessarily percolate or emerge and arise in, in, in the other chapters. Although... At a a conceptual level, and and we can have a conversation about it, at a conceptual level, in some ways, the the kind of past that was being imagined through this nation-building and reconciliation framework that the state had set up, that kind of past was was very nostalgic. It was nostalgic in the sense of being idealistic. Um, And there's a fragility to nostalgia that, that um, that is related to the sub- substantive circumstance of 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 how nostalgia actually arises. Insofar as you um, can only be nostalgic for something that you do not have, um, right? Yeah. So nostalgia is always aspirational, and um, and that's and that's what makes nostalgia such such a the the fragility of nostalgia is, it, can, it can be really productive um people. To work with and, and, to, and to think with it and what is what sets up the brittleness that that makes us nostalgia so potent in a in, in a particular circumstance
0: does your rendering of nostalgia make it something unique to your study or can we use nostalgia to explain other forms of nation building in other cases so that's one question i did have is your study unique to South Africa, or is it one that travels, quote-unquote, to, quote, Foucault?
1: That's a challenging question. I, I, I wanted to make a set of claims about what's going on or what had been going on in South Africa at a particular time. Right. And I wanted to put those propositions in play as part of a broader international set of conversations about heritage about the census about culture so uh, in some ways I was the book is a little bit patriotic I have to say. I really didn't want to flag, I really did want to flag like our problems and our contradictions uh, out here are are distinct and unique in ways that uh, you haven't seen before and I tried to profile that Um. Of course, you run a, a number of risks by, by profiling your case studies in, in that way. Um, I never in any way did did I want to profile our case studies as being unique. Um, by that, by that, I mean to say that, that they were incomparable. I think that they, they, I, I tried to profile them in, in the sharpest ways that I could, so that they could be drawn into other conversations. Um,
0: I think you did that. I like I, I work a lot on Rwanda and a little bit on Kenya. And I can imagine using the senses and the way that you describe them to understand, for example, Rwanda's post-genocide reconciliation project. So they don't use, you know, you don't see in the literature on Rwanda the language of heritage or of material culture, but the government does not impose but expect, I suppose, a particular kind of embodied response to certain yeah. activities related to reconciliation. And you can see that, for example, in Kenya with, you know, memorials for the Mau Mau, for example. And I thought, um, you know, maybe it is a patriotic study, but that's okay because you you begin to get for the average reader, you know, someone who may not be ex- familiar with South Africa per se, the value of a sense-based framework in that you, each chapter is uniquely evocative in the sense that you you have um, vision, you have taste, you have touch. Like the idea of touching newspapers in your Sunday Times chapter, I thought was so compelling. The overarching conceptual framework for me, and when I teach your book to my students, I use the language of embodiment. The embodiment is actually really challenging to study because it's so idiosyncratic and subjective so Absolutely. You, yeah so if you think a bit deeper and you're like okay so what does it mean to have the smell of flowers to understand forced removals through cellars in a city like mm-hmm. town? like that is actually uniquely positioned to help us understand embodiment beyond the traditional feminist frameworks I find your work to be Decolonial in the sense that we mean it in in the West, and to be um, feminist in the sense that it centers the body without actually centering the body.
1: Um. Thanks. Thanks for pulling out those uh, those references, uh, Susan. I didn't think about it like that. And but the more you prompt me, um, I think th- there are possibilities for 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 method here. Right? Like for thinking about. To, uh, I wonder what the, the the opposite would be. So, how would it be possible to write a book about the heritage in the senses if I made no reference to my to my own experience of, of of these differences? I think it, it yeah, it, it it didn't make sense to me as a as a project, um, without me inserting myself in some way. Sure. Um, and also, and and also, yeah. It's stepping out of this the the sense of scholarly um, omnipotence and uh, into spaces of vulnerability at times i mean it's, sure. it's uh, to to venture into the kind of nostalgia that i that i set up in the in the little reading that i' provided to enter into that space of nostalgia is is it's a vulnerable space it's a it's a space of um of uncertainty, a space of risk, a scholarly risk, and and that that goes unannounced, but it it was an important risk for that chapter in order to articulate the possibilities of of what an engaged sensory studies reading of these phenomena could possibly look like. Right. Uh, And uh, I didn't claim it explicitly like that. Um, either in the introduction or the or the conclusion, um, but books are funny things. Um, you, can, you can you can go back to them and you can read. You can go back to them and see things in them. Yeah, you know, That I was really making that kind of argument. So I, I think there are grounds for for the idea of, of um, method to say to to challenge for our, our students to to add a little bit of themselves, especially. Um, and bring themselves in, especially in, in, uh, in contexts and cases and, and research fields that that require this kind of uh, phenomenological reflection that can actually drive and lift. Um,
0: yeah, and it can act as a hermeneutic, like as an interpretive device. Our, yes, our embodied reactions are part of our findings.
1: It's and, and I think it's more and more important now. Especially around, um, um, especially around and in the field of, of contested heritage, contested pasts, um, to foreground um, your, your experience of, of, of a certain set of phenomena. I don't think it should be the be-all and end-all of the debate. I do think it's really important to flag like that And to reflect on that, um, to add to the broadening and the deepening of of a set of common
0: I think that what makes your study so profound for me is that senses are cultural, senses are place-based, and yet at the same time, they're completely universal because we all have some experience of them. And I think it does provide a way for researchers to be more reflective about whatever study they might be pursuing. Not just something specific to heritage or something specific to the senses, so with that comment in mind, did you want to read from chapter five? I must say Bry Day was um, so outlandish, but yet so tangible. I just love it was a great way to end the book. Your last uh, substantive chapter before the conclusion.
1: Uh, thank you so much. I, th- I think it was um, it was a chapter that was cooking for a long time. <laughs> It was a it was a it was a, cooking, a chapter that was cooking for a long time uh, in the back of my mind, thinking about my uh, PhD dissertation um, because it was such a huge phenomenon in South Africa. While I was busy doing my while I was busy writing my PhD dissertation, but it was a case study that fell out of um, the scope of my PhD project. I was always just there every year, uh, 24th of September, which is South African Heritage Day. Um, uh, people, there, there would be this roaring debate in public. We shouldn't refer to the day as National Friday. We should refer to the day as, as National Heritage Day. huge, 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 huge dispute about this. Um, and it was just, I, I just, Kept collecting material on this, and I really wanted to make space to write something about, about the Brade phenomenon. So, effectively, just to introduce your readers to the to the Brade phenomenon before I actually get into the case, uh, to reading um, one or two passages. Um, in I think it was in 2005. I think in 2005, um, an entrepreneur named uh, Jan Scannell, he, he initiated a a kind of spoof uh, movement in South Africa uh, to have this organic celebration of barbecue, What is it, what in American Canada is typically referred to as barbecue, but in South Africa, we, we refer to it as a fry And he said, um, let's let's come together and um, let's fry on, on this particular day and South Africans can come together and we can get all fry and and uh, be patriotic and wave the flag and and talk about our heritage. Um, But uh, with each passing year and with the increasing popularity of um, this event, not only did it become popular amongst um, retail marketers, it also divided the nation insofar as people started, the public, the South African public really started debating about, so what the hell really is Heritage Day all about? And what is our heritage all about? Like, um, do we pry or don't we pray? Um, and so uh, putting that question on the table, I think, was one of the most important things of that project, the Pride Day project. But I go on to show in the chapter how um, I illustrate, firstly, how you go about setting up a really popular and really profitable um, heritage campaign. One that really draws the nation in and one that, that explicitly references similar national uh, pastimes, invented national pastimes in other parts of the world. So, so there's a kind of recipe for, for how to go about it percolating uh, or at least simmering in this in this chapter. And um, I follow these arguments to illustrate exactly how close um, marketing rhetorics and uh, heritage discourses actually uh, track each other and weave into each other, and so that at certain points it becomes very difficult for you to distinguish between whether um, people are just making this up or if this really is um, uh, if this really is heritage. So I'll read you I'll read you a passage. Um, one of the one of the central debates in in this in this whole pride um, phenomenon was about whether or not the South African word and, and the tradition of, of open-fire cooking, commonly referred to as barbecue, was South African at all. Like, how do you substantiate that? Like, I mean, everybody uh, does this this um, open-fire cooking. How do you substantiate it? And uh, I'll read you a little passage of, of how this um, tradition, or, or at least this cooking method, was substantiated based on, on the literature that I uh, discovered and, and looked up. Thank you. Um, so but what indeed was distinctly South African about braai? Why was it in any way distinct from other traditions of open fire cooking? Indeed, grilling can be seen as a ritual of consumption, of consumption nations, putkin on important commemorative days around the world. For example, barbecue has has been described as America's first food and an American institution that was enthusiastically observed on Independence Day on, uh, on the 4th of July. Grill smoke also envelops Israel's Independence Day celebration. Uh, Nir uh, Avieli argues, for example, that barbecuing meat is the main activities for most Israeli Jews celebrating the nation on Independence Day, becoming so central to annual festivities That is that it has come to be known as Barbecue Day. Continually nominated as a national dish of Australia, the barbecue is held in high esteem and is widely observed on Australia day when lamb is grilled as the preferred meat. Here we get the, the, these global impressions of, of the significance of barbecue. Brian was distinctly different, at least according to Desmond Tutu, uh, one of Jan Skernel's uh, main uh, supporters. Of yeah,
0: Desmond. sponsors almost.
1: Yeah, enthusing Enthusi- about the Pride project in 2007, Archbishop Tutu provided a well-thought-through argument about the cultural significance of braai as a distinctly South African cooking method. First, the word braai had a lexical distinctiveness as a singular term that cut across polylingual differences. We have, what, 11 languages, but only one word for this wonderful institution. It's braai, it's braai in Cosa, it's braai in Afrikaans, it's braai in English, and it's braai in whatever, he said. Significantly, the word braai is itself very young, with, the, with one of the first dictionary entries of the word braai, uh, deriving from the, which derives from the Dutch word braden, appearing in a dictionary from uh, 1902. Second Archbishop Desmond Tutu argued that the braai staged a small-scale sociality that had nation-building potential, um, saying, quote, it has fantastic potential to bind us together because all it calls for is to come together with your friends, your family, you have a little fire, and braai, close quotes. Elaborating on the essence of braai's socially binding potential, Tutu said, we've shown the world a few things. Let us show them that ordinary activities like eating can unite people of different races, religions, sexes. Short people, tall people, fat people, lean people, close quotes. In these terms, Braai had the potential to unite all of humanity. Finally, Tutu asserted that because of his distinctiveness as a linguistic, uh, linguistic unifier and a cultural form with real nation-building potential, Brying was essentially an unrecognized patriotic activity, open quotes. Don't do anything else, just pry. I mean, that should make you proudly South African, close quote. was thus a linguistic unifier, a nation-building social occasion, and a pride-inducing patriotic ritual activity. In summary, then, uh, open quotes, this Bribe initiative reflects the spirit of South Africans and embodies the unique methods we employ as a nation to promote democracy, patriotism, and national pride. Promoting prize as, as advancing democracy, inspiring patriotism and pride, Archbishop Desmond Tutu again affirmed that consumption be the focus of heritage days commemorative commemorative activity so these are the kinds of claims that that I was working through in 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 this chapter um illustrating um uh, how certain personalities can lend weight to certain claims right um and provide logics that, that are intuitively convincing and persuasive and cut very close to, to official state rhetoric of um, what, what the essence of the commemoration of heritage in post-apartheid South Africa actually is, and makes it very difficult for, for ordinary South Africans to, to distinguish between whether or not they want to distinguish of post for, for ordinary South Africans even the readers of my book to distinguish between okay so so where does the the, the marketing spiel and the rhetoric uh, end, and um, and uh, an actual heritage um official heritage discourses actually begin and um, and it's that kind of troubling that I was I was searching for in in, in this chapter.
0: It's such an interesting chapter, too, because it brings in beyond marketing and the relationship between marketing and heritage, which I think is pretty profound. Actually, it's a great connection to make is your identification of a particular brand of masculinity, white masculinity in particular, um, with some of the images you have in the chapter. I'm particularly struck by the one with Jan Bryce standing with them. Um, um, indigenous people in Namibia. <laughs> he found a clever yeah, way to market his personality as sort of a South African everyman and that everyman seems to be part of the heritage that Bride Day is trying to capture.
1: And yeah, like, I mean, the, the, even just writing that, right? Like, I was, yeah, the essence of the Friday Day project was exactly, as you said, um, it was a campaign that was, was meant to reach and speak to the everyman, um, the ordinary South African. And I show that, that, that of all the people to develop a campaign like this, um, he definitely was not the archetype of the everyman.
0: That true, true.
1: Yeah, he, he, he was the opposite of the archetype of the everyman. And um, so that so it was impossible for him to hold that claim, and I think that's the fragility of this chapter. So if you if you read the chapter as a kind of uh, biography project of this entrepreneur, um, then these images, some of them, are, which are challenging, it's it's difficult to look at this image of of Jan Brahe and figure five point three. Um, it, yeah. it appears it appears in his cookbook, uncommented, like he's He's standing around with a with a group of indigenous people. I don't know what I don't know what the the visual communication here is, whether whether he identifies with them, whether they're trying to make a statement about the traditional origins of this yeah,
0: yeah. indigeneity or something.
1: Yeah, I I don't know what what this image is supposed to communicate. There was no uh, caption um, supporting it, but it's it's, it's problematic being. Uncontextualized like that, and yet there's a tension in this image. Insofar as it, it there's an urgency for this individual. Um, at least that's the way I read it. There's an urgency for this individual, and through this project, to be able to take up that position of the everyman. That that they are able to do that in an unquestioned way. And I think the pride, the pride day um, chapter was an interrogation of of like, who gets to do that and under what conditions do they get to do that? And and ultimately, um, I show in the conclusion that it's precisely because of the terms in which our reconciliation and nation-building narratives were set up, that um, we, we didn't have a kind of, we, we had a negotiated settlement. And part of the negotiated settlement was was a set of languages that, that said um, that uh, there were no winners and there were no losers. Right. And it, and it suggested that it suggested because there were no winners and no losers, everything is possible under nation building and reconciliation rhetoric. And so it allows in some ways it, it, it allows for that, right. that searching for the adoption of, of an everyman persona, as long as it, as long as it, it contributes towards some kind of social good. And, um, I needed to flag i needed to flag that in this chapter in not not for a sense of character assassination
0: um, right i agree it,
1: it's it, it, it's not a character assassination no. just to just to point out that someone is privileged and were they to be able to um were they to be able to to make these kinds of claims? rather it, 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 it was it was important because firstly Scannell had inserted his own biography into the story. It the, the project was very much about him, and so um, if he was putting himself out there, then um, then a, a biographical reading of who he really was is, was a valid was a valid critique, but also a, a kind of reading of of the cultural terms in which he presented himself and the way he wanted to be seen and now that matched up to um uh, we actually came from I think yeah I, I'd never thought about it like that I, I hadn't thought about it like that before it, it was just oh, in the
0: background yeah
1: and so it just it just g- came home to me um quite strongly now um thinking about it and, and looking at it it is quite ridiculous um uh but, but uh, I, I made a bit of a meal out of it, and, and I'm glad it sat with you. Yeah,
0: but I think the absurdity, for lack of a better word, like it, it's it's kind of a bizarre thing, because you could situate Bry as embodying all the senses,
1: precisely. It,
0: Based on which you know protein you choose, I guess like can can you bry tofu in the South African setting? I'm not
1: sure that's appropriate to the to the context. I didn't highlight that in the chat. I didn't highlight it strongly enough. Highly gendered, gendered. gendered. You did actually capture that, I think. And the picture the picture is so compelling. Oh. Speaking over you, I'm sorry. No, uh, of who gets to of who gets to uh, handle the meat who gets to light the fire, who, who prepares what kinds of dishes, um, the order of the meal, et cetera. Uh, the domestic space versus outdoor space, all of these are highly gendered. And so um, the notion of bride that, that is developed and, and advanced in the bride project is a very conservative idea of heteronormativity, of the nuclear family, of the man as the breadwinner, mm-hmm. as a man tough guy, an, out, an outdoors person. And it was a highly, highly gendered um, uh, a culinary practice.
0: And- I think you see that in the image that we just discussed on page one, um, 145. <laughs> Jan is standing there with these um, indigenous folks from Namibia, with his hands on his hips and sort of presenting this like superhero stance in his, in the image. And it's it's pretty interesting to see him sitting uh, or standing, I should say, with these individuals without an ounce of context, but still projecting this um, masculine drive. And it's interesting in Namibia because, of course, South Africa occupied. What is present-day Namibia until the 1970s as you well know?
1: Absolutely I, I mean it's a it, it's a fantastic image for a, a visual anthropological analysis. There, there is so much going on in that image.
0: Yeah, it's really rich. it's a great image.
1: A contemporary white South African masculinity um, and you can read it against these histories of of African occupation, etc.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, um, Duane, I've kept you for a good long time. So as we begin to wrap up, I want to ask two more questions. Number one, what is your next project? And number two, do you have um, readings, podcasts, documentaries that you might suggest to readers who wish to dive deeper into your framework and into your research?
1: Um, my next project is um, looking at horticulture, botany, and plants in South Africa as an open field mm-hmm. for the negotiation and mediation of um, uh, notions of the past uh, in the city of Cape Town, looking at a different set of sites and heritage sites in, in the city. Some some sites aren't necessarily um, explicitly framed, framed as heritage. Um, so it's a little bit of a shift for me, um, but essentially I am a theorist of the cultural production of heritage and contested public cultures, those are the two uh, sets of rubrics that I sit with and uh, that think me. Now I'm, I'm applying them in a new setting. Um, uh, podcasts and um, and other popular accessible um, references. I think um, Africa is a Country, the blog, I've written quite uh, regularly for Africa is a Country, so if you want to, to access some of my public writing, you can, you can do so there. Um, not much of it is about the census, but it, it uh, yeah, these are extensions of, of, of the kinds of ways I think about contesting Public Health. So the free articles that, that you're able to access at Africa's country. But all of Africa's country is an amazing, is an amazing resource and it's an amazing project. Great people working at Africa's country. The conversation South Africa is also another source of um, uh, of uh, information, uh, or at least uh, for articles, that are public articles that I've written. Um, I've also done a podcast about this book um, with the uh, the historian of science um, Edna Bonham for oh, okay. a fan- for a fantastic podcast called uh, Decolonization in Action. I would encourage your listeners to try and access um, the podcast uh, "Decolonization in Action." You can you can check it out on Spotify. Oh, great! Um, Thanks. That's a that's a wonderful resource. So not just for for uh, another in- interview about about my book, but also um, about um, the wonderful, wonderful speakers that that Edna gets onto onto her platform. Wonderful. Yeah. That's, uh, those are the, the references that I can suggest for your audience.
0: Yeah, Dwayne, thanks for your time today. Is there any final remark or question I didn't ask that you would have liked to have answered? Anything we're missing before we um, end our time together?
1: I think, um, I think it's more and more important to think about heritage and the, and the census because uh, in these times of um, the culture wars that are taking place not only in the U.S. but in, in other places, um, such as the UK uh, in Germany where i have worked before also um, it's becoming more and more apparent the ways in which um, the culture wars are, are filtering into uh, scholarly practice and, and yeah. the way in which we work as scholars and in the way in which we, we teach and uh, the way in which we work with our with our students um, heritage issues are, are more and more important and um, I think hopefully hopefully, hopefully my book can, can add to a conversation about um, the diversity of perceptions of how the past matters for different people and that that's also important, that, that it is important to recognize that um, heritage is that which is contested and the contestation is a good thing it is a good thing to, to have um, fierce debates and, and struggles about the past. It's, it's healthy and it's important. Um, and to keep an open mind about these things, because it's, uh, it's starting to affect the way our colleagues work. Um, it's, it's starting to affect um, what topics people are allowed to work on. It's, it's affecting how um, funding is channeled. Yeah. Simply simply based on um perceptions of the politicization of um what is considered to be heritage and history. Yeah and so it's more important more and more important to, to to keep these ideas in mind and to take a position on, on certain things and to um to to stand for certain issues in, in some of these. Things. So um
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to end with a reminder that um, these concepts have practical application and they affect how we think, how we study, how our work is funded and so on. Duane, thank you so much. We've um, been speaking to Duane Drethrow about his new book, Heritage Formation in the Census and Post-Apartheid South Africa.